It's a white coat Wednesday, which means a visit from the doctor. Dr. Mitch Shulman is here. Good morning. Good morning to you, sir. So a pattern in children's eyes that might reveal if they have autism. Tell me about that. This is incredible and extremely, extremely promising. So scientists out of a university in South Korea basically took kids with autism and took pictures of the back of their eye, their retina. If any of you have had an eye exam, you know how easy that is. You just basically rest your chin on something and the machine automatically does it in a split second. Not painful, not difficult, not really a tough thing to do. And they used um, artificial intelligence to teach uh, the system how to recognize uh, changes in the retina that were found in children with autism. It turns out that there are specific changes in the retina that you and I might not be able to pick up, but that through uh, an analysis of the photo of the retina, the AI was able to train itself to pick up. They then took that information, the trained AI, and used it to make the diagnosis in uh, uh, over 900 children a certain number of whom actually had autism, already diagnosed, and a certain number who had not yet been diagnosed or did not have it. And lo and behold, the machine-trained uh, photograph of the retina, the algorithm based on that, was able to pick up the diagnosis, in this case, 100% of the time. Wow. In other words, it was correctly able to find out which kids had autism and which did not. Now, think of what that means. Right now, to make the diagnosis of autism, you can suspect it, the teachers can suspect it, the daycare people can suspect it, but it takes a battery of uh, tests done by a psychologist or or a social worker, especially trained, or a psychiatrist to pick up the diagnosis. Limited resources, difficult to find someone to do it, takes time. And that time is so valuable because if you intervene early enough, appropriately, you can make such a huge difference in the ability of these kids to then get on with their lives and function properly. So if this does pan out, this is hugely important. And they were able to make the diagnosis as young as four. Uh, that was the youngest child in their study. They're hoping that they might be able to extend it even lower. They haven't done that yet, but this is just huge. Uh, and so fingers crossed that this can make it across the pond to us, and it's something that we can start using. Well, you mentioned those age thresholds, and I'm curious, I don't know, do we have an answer to this question? Is this something that would be present from birth? It could be. We know that the eyes mature as the baby develops till about the age of four, give or take. So there's definitely a window of maturity. So do those changes wait until the eye is completely mature? Or uh, can they be picked up a lot earlier? We just don't know yet. And so that's the key next step. The key next step is let's see if we can train the AI to pick it up in three-year-olds or two-year-olds um, as soon as we can possibly make the diagnosis and start making interventions in terms of how interact with the children, how we teach them, how they train them, um, so they have a better chance of making it uh, through the world uh, in a normal way. So we may not be able to treat autism. We may not be able to cure it but we may be able to help those kids cope better and develop additional skills so they can make it more easily through life. And that's the key thing. Until we can figure out exactly what causes it, until we can figure out exactly how to treat it, giving these kids the skills they need to make it through life as, and then to mature into adulthood uh, would be essential.
Okay. Um, one of the interesting things about COVID has been that we just keep learning more and more as we go, and we're learning more about long COVID. And is it true that some people have had long COVID for four years? So it would appear those people who got sick at the very start of the uh, pandemic, uh, there are a significant number of people who are still having symptoms, brain fog, chest pain, shortness of breath, inability to focus or concentrate, all the way out to now. The good news is there's the long COVID web, uh, um, a, a, a scientific research organization of I think over 600 researchers and scientists across at least Canada that are organized to try and figure out what's going on and what they can do to help people. And and certainly there are clinics now popping up, official clinics, not, uh, but real clinics run by academic centers across Canada. The University Health Network in Toronto, for example, under the auspices of Dr. Chung, have a long COVID uh, research unit that is trying to help people and is making huge inroads there. So the key thing is if you think you're suffering from long COVID, realize you're not alone and there are resources available go online find out where the nurse center is that can help you because a multidisciplinary approach to helping people with uh, long hauler syndrome long covid whatever you want to call it post covid syndrome um, whatever you want to call it there are clinics now that are sprouting that can definitely help people so the key thing is to get yourself into one of those clinics so you can do the best you can and a Swedish study, you got to break this out for us, um, finds a higher death rate for those who fear serious illness. So being afraid of serious illness could kill you? Yes, this is fascinating. You might have thought that if you were hypochondriacal, in other words, if you had a, a heightened concern about your health, you'd be screened more often. They pick up illnesses earlier. And yes, you're a pain to deal with, but you're going to save yourself and live longer. Turns out you don't. In this Swedish study with a massive registry reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association Psychiatry, they looked at people from 1997 to 2020 who were actually diagnosed diagnosed with hypochondriasis. Uh, there's this, um, there's a true um, a diagnosis in the uh, diagnostic manual for that. They have to understand when you're talking about hypochondriasis, this isn't, you know, oh gee, I wonder what that is on my skin and then you get to go, go on with your day and you don't really worry about it. People with this disorder, mental health disorder, are preoccupied. It takes over their entire life. They can't do anything else. It actually interferes with their day-to-day -day functioning. And so what ends up happening is these people die on average in this study five years younger at the age of 70 versus 75 compared to age-matched controls, normal people without this disorder in Sweden. Uh, and they died of stress-related illnesses, uh, heart attacks, strokes, and suicide. And so, the, and not cancer. So even if you are being screened, it's not making a difference. What's getting you is all the anxiety and stress that you're feeling. And the anxiety and stress puts extra strain on your heart and on your blood vessels, and therefore it gives you an increased risk of heart attack and stroke. And so you actually end up dying earlier. And the stress, the anxiety, the worry can be so overwhelming. They have a, they had a four times increased rate of suicide. So this is a real disorder. There is treatment for it, thank goodness. Um, but if you find that being concerned about your health is overwhelming, that it consumes your day-to-day -day activities, that it interferes with your normal activities, then you have a mental health disorder that we need to deal with. Okay, but you can't write a script that says stop worrying about your health. 
No, that you need things like cognitive behavioral okay. therapy, maybe antidepressants. You need to be seen by a doctor and managed appropriately as if this were a mental health disorder, which it is, which we now know. Thank you, sir. Good to have you this morning. Always a pleasure. You take care. That's our medical correspondent, Dr. Mitch Shulman on a white coat Wednesday.